stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Liz Prado, is a writer, editor, and teacher. Her short stories and essays have appeared everywhere from the Los Angeles Review, Subtropics, and Ziziva to Salon and The Rumpus. Prado also served as editor of the fiction anthology The Night and the Rain and the River from Forest Avenue Press and guest prose editor for Voicecatcher. She began teaching writing in 2008 at the Attic Institute of Arts and Letters here in Portland, Oregon, and has taught creative writing since for various literary organizations throughout the state. Liz Prado is here today to talk about her debut collection of stories, Babies on Fire, from Press 53. Writer Steve Allman describes the collection well. Liz Prado's stories are filled with the lost, the lonely, and the damned, and she makes all of them sing with a haunting grandeur. Babies on Fire is a lamentation brimming with wit, candor, and the eternal possibility of mercy. Welcome to Between the Covers, Liz Prado. Thank you, David. Did you have a philosophy around shaping the collection? I know you've talked about in other interviews that your editor played a large role. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you were shaping the collection towards a theme together, or were there other considerations in how you decided to to put these stories together as babies on fire. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, by the, you know, when I finally realized, oh, a collection is supposed to have a theme and it's not just a random collection of things that I've written, <laughs> you know, by the time I figured that out, I really thought about what do I want these to have in common with each other. And I looked and I saw a bunch of people, specifically women, who were trying to figure out who they were in the world when they had a certain loss or a certain significant change in their circumstances. And, you know, we don't always react with grace in those situations. And sometimes we do things that we are sorry about or might even be ashamed of in the long run. And the question for me was, well, how do you do those things and then still try and find grace? I mean, that really resonates with my read of of the book. Um, It seems like on the surface, the stories are really different. For Mm -hmm. instance, there's a story that takes place in Hawaii, another one in Guatemala in Belize. Uh, There's ones in old age homes and an airport. But when I was thinking more deeply about how these stories were connected to each other. And I'm curious if this feels right to you. Uh, A lot of the stories to me seem like they had to do with destabilized families, Mm -hmm. either families falling apart or people searching for creating new families. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's definitely a sense of fragility and Mm -hmm. and a transition, um, like looking for security or losing security. It was interesting. I was thinking about that this morning before I came over here, how... 
interesting it is that so many of these stories do revolve around family and even sibling relationships when I didn't have a close relationship with my brother. And you know, my, my family was pretty messed up. Not even so much when I was a kid, but as an adult, it really started to fragment in some pretty serious ways to the extent that I'm the only living member left. Um, and so I never set out to write about family, the search for family, but you know, our, our brain, our, our writing brain knows more than we know sometimes. And it knew that that was the thing that I was in search of and that I wanted to achieve somehow. I, I love that. I was going to ask you that specific question, whether whether this recurring motif around family was conscious or not, because you've written such amazing uh, nonfiction essays, really brave and heartfelt essays about what has happened in your in your own personal biography. Mm, thank you. So I was I was curious if you went in with that conscious idea of I'm going to write about these issues, or if it was more like I remember when I was interviewing George Saunders, he talked about you you step away from the ideas and you stick very close to the text and then like small animals they crawl into the into the forest of your story <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's a great way to put that. And my name has never been mentioned in the same sentence as George Saunders before. So I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. And I think, you know, even it's possible even until I didn't see it as a collection and uh, had the ability to step back and see it as an object that I, I even noticed that about it. Can, can you tell us um, how you chose Babies on Fire as the title story and the name of the... Of the collection. Well, the collection had several different names before Babies on Fire. I had been sending it out for a couple of years, and it had been named Astronomical Objects, and it had been named He Never Gave It to You Straight, which was a story that ultimately didn't make it into the collection. And I think it even had some other title, which I don't remember now. Babies on Fire, that line itself felt very resonant with me, not baby as a small, not as an infant, but as a woman, as a young woman. Um, and the, the women in this book all have something like that. They have some fire going on, some way in which they're dealing, like I said, with this fall from grace um, and figuring out how to come back from that. So that was the one that really resonated the most with me and presumably resonated with my publisher as well. And when I first sent the collection out, Babies on Fire was not the first story in the collection. I think it was maybe buried three or four stories in. And the reason I did that is it was not one of the stories that had been previously published. And so I was really thinking, oh, I really want to you know, front load the collection with my strongest pieces when I send it out. Um, but I had the good fortune to work at the Tin House Writers Workshop with Jim Shepard on that story, and he really helped me bring it to a point where I felt like it was strong enough to not only be in the collection, but at least to be in the beginning of the collection. And then my publisher thought, that's our first story. Hmm. Uh, you have this great essay that I think uh, really relates to some of what you do that's magical and Babies on Fire, and it's uh, called What's So Damn Funny? about death. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you talk about in that essay, the trepidation that a lot of people have when they're doing death writing or mm -hmm. writing about death, that people are, are potentially scared to talk about things that are not bleak when they're mm -hmm. talking about death. And, that, and one of the things you talk about in that essay that is demonstrated in your fiction is that you find these weirdnesses moments of humor or even enjoyment within a larger context of despair. Mm -hmm. uh, t tell us about that that um, approach and, and the considerations you have when you're discussing very um, traumatic issues, but also finding other tones within it. 
Yeah. Part of that is just the way I live my life. Uh, you know, I, I think maybe from some of the nonfiction essays that are out there where I talk about some of the more um, sad and traumatic events that have happened in the past, you know, eight years or so, there's not so much a humor element in it. But all the time I was going through all that, I had these certain friends and family, not family members, what am I saying? I had certain friends who we would just find those weird things and laugh at them. And that was a lifesaver. And that's always been a lifesaver for me. I can, I, I can remember when I was 16 years old and our family dog had to be put to sleep, and uh, just two nights before that, my best girlfriend and I had been house-sitting the dog. My dad was out of town, and we uh, were imbibing some stuff <laughs> and uh, totally forgot about the dog and left it outside. <laughs> and so, And then two days later, the dog had to be put to sleep, and when I called and told that to my friend, she said, oh, my God, we killed her! And there was just something so funny about the way she said it, and I think that kind of added has just permeated the way I've had to deal with some of these things. And I say had to deal with because I think part of me says, oh, we have a choice. We can either choose to see that there are these moments of lightness or these moments of weirdness or whatever that lifts things up in the moments of tragedy. But I also think I came into the world as a genuinely optimistic person. So I think I'm always just looking for the way to rise above the tragedy. And that's one of the ways I do it. Well, I definitely feel like for me, reading those what you call light moments are actually make the dark moments more real yeah. because it feels like something I can recognize because when you're just portraying death as unrelentingly bleak, mm -hmm. that's not how I think a lot of people experience yeah. it, even though it is primarily that. Yeah, yeah. 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 But you know, it's a part of life and like all sorts of silly, crazy things happen within it. You know, people and you know, I, I think grieving is a form of insanity. So people behave really wacky, you know, and those things can be kind of funny if you're able to step back and look at it. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Liz Prado about her debut collection called Babies on Fire. Another thing about Babies on Fire that I really like is you seem to have a, um, a knack for um, creating stories that have s emotional stakes. So the, the stories feel like they're at pivotal moments. There's a lot, there's a lot at stake for the main character. You have um, stories where a father has just died, a childhood home has burned down, a woman leaves a relationship while on vacation with her partner, a woman with cancer is visited by her daughter who disapproves of her relationship with another woman. And you don't turn away from these awkward moments. You you hold us in these awkward moments. And, and for us to see in real time, how are these people going to sort out these messy emotions? Are they going to sort out yeah. these messy emotions? Uh, is this, do you, just, do you feel like you just have a honing, honing signal to... Uh, to go there? Well, now I do. And this goes back to something you and I were talking about earlier, which was a writing instructor we share in common, Steve Almond. And Steve Almond is the one who I first studied with him in 2006. And he really beat that into me, not just in that first class I took with him, but he's critiqued probably almost every story I've ever written. And, you know, he's just always red marking it all over. What are the stakes? Why does this matter? What's going on? What, you know, what's important here? Mm. And I think he's really the one that, uh, helped me understand, like to start the story closest to that moment as possible and make sure that the readers understand the stakes really fast so they can get invested in it as soon as possible. So I have a lot to owe to him for that. Well, n now that we're on the topic of Steve <laughs> Allman, there's, an, there's something that you share, I think, in common with him that uh, in addition to this idea of emotional stakes, and that's you're both uh, willing 
to and excel at writing uh, sex. Mm. <laughs> and so Steve Allman always talks about th- it's too bad that people avoid writing about sex because it is such an opportunity yeah. for developing character. You, you learn so yeah. much about people and who they are in ways that you don't when their clothes are on. Yes. And you've got some great scenes in here, weird sexual scenes with, with long dialogues happening. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and other awkward moments that really um, shape the character mm. in a way that I don't think they would be dimensionalized if they weren't there. Oh, cool. So my question for you around that is, what considerations do you have for writing sex? Because I think the main reason people don't do it is because there's so much bad sex writing. Mm-hmm. There just is so much, and it's so easy for it to be bad. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'll, I, I will say this. This is one of the few things that I've always felt like I do pretty well naturally. And I don't know what that says about me. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, when I was in college, I studied the history of gender and sexuality. And I was reading all these texts on sexuality that came out of the turn of the century, both in Europe and America. And that's what my thesis is on. So I think I've always had a certain interest and comfort in talking about that anyway. Um, and certainly a certain comfort in the humanity of it, not just the, the, the clinical aspects of it. Um, you know, it's this place in which we are extremely expressive, potentially, but we are also utterly vulnerable. And that's a really fascinating place then for character to come out, as you were saying. So for me, it's just like, a, a, you know, it's putting together things that I find interesting, that I find fun with something that actually pushes the story forward, too. And another another teacher that you've quoted before is Tom Spambauer. Mm. And I think at one point you quoted something like, uh, what story would you tell to a dying person? Yeah. So essentially asking yourself the question, what is what is of importance that I'm going to tell now? Yes. I, yes. Lo- I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such a smart way to look at it. Uh, you know, I, I'm an editor and I get a lot of stories that come across my desk, whether for manuscript consultation or for consideration for publication in some way. And Many of them have lovely language and have a lot going on, but like, what's the point? What really happens here? What's at stake? What what makes me feel this deep in my heart, deep in my soul? What makes me catch my breath? And if that's not in there, all the beautiful sentences in the world can't save you. That's right. Yeah, you, you related uh, something that happened when you were editing the Forest Avenue Press collection mm. around one of the people that I've had on between the covers, Scott Spar- Sparling, oh, yeah. and that you saw a story that had some uh, some formal issues with it mm-hmm. still, but you really felt that there was this great beating heart in it, mm-hmm. and that was worth more as an editor than... than uh, than a story that might have perfect sentences, but was sort of soulless. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I knew that if that story, if I rejected that and it went on to be published somewhere else, I would regret that. And it was really, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It was really just a dream editing experience. I loved every aspect of it, and I wish they were all like that. You have another essay that I really enjoyed in Salon, and it's about a, a friend of yours who was supposed to be on the, the Lockerbie flight that was shot down over Scotland. Yes. And a lot of her uh, classmates at Syracuse perished in that flight. Mm-hmm. And then you have a story in Babies on Fire that, uh, from a fictional perspective, uh, revisits the Lockerbie tragedy and, and involves a, an awkward conversation at a dinner table around politics in relationship to this act of terrorism. I I would love to hear both how you went about approaching a fictional version 
of this issue that happened in real life to a close friend. And also, what were some of your thoughts around including a charged political issue in a short story? Well, I had never considered myself a political writer in any way. I consider myself a writer of the human heart. Um, but guess what? A lot of things around that tend to be political, it turns out. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I the story of what happened to my friend Annie Laroe was something that really haunted me for years. And she and I were even out of touch for a very long period of time. And I still thought about her. And what was that like to have lost so many of her friends to be the survivor of such a profound tragedy? And so even when she and I hadn't gotten back in touch, I was trying trying to write fictions about what it was like to be her. What could it be like to be her? And they all fell kind of flat. They were never quite right. And then... Um, it occurred to me one day, wow, why don't I just look her up on the internet and see where she is? And maybe she's somewhere where I can talk to her about it. And it turned out she was in Seattle. So we got in touch and I told her I wanted to write about it. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to write yet, but I knew it was going to be some sort of nonfiction piece. Could I interview her? Went up there, interviewed her, got eight hours of uh, of interview tape. And then it was really interesting because what happened next was I went over to Bremerton to see an old high school friend of mine who uh, lived with her husband, who was a Navy man. And he just asked me one night, it was after dinner and we were kind of drinking and he asked me, what are you doing? And I told him about the interview and he said, okay, well, let me tell you about my perspective on that. And he had been in the Strait of Hormuz when all of this went down um, the couple of years before the, the flight was shot down over Lockerbie or Exploded over Lockerbie. And he told me this whole different perspective on it that was really fascinating. And I've always been kind of anti-militaristic. So to be able to hear this person talk about what he was doing there and what he felt his responsibilities were was really profound to me. And I knew there wasn't a place for it in the nonfiction piece that I was writing for Salon, but I needed to find a place for it somehow. And I knew fiction was going to be the place for that. Mm. And, and was that difficult to to characterize these political ideas in a fictional piece? Not too much, actually, because I felt like I had, you know, characters who could hold that. Uh, you know, for instance, the um, main character in that story, A Proportional Response, her roommate had been very political, um, and the narrator herself never wanted to be. So she could kind of look back on that and talk about how her her roommate, whose name was Tori, would say, the personal is political and all those things. And she never really thought that way until this all happened to her. So I felt like with that, I had a container, and but for it. And then what I was able to do was actually make it the personal story, make it the story of what this military guy was doing and make it the story of what this young woman went through and how these two people had really, in similar ways, a sense of helplessness, a sense of inability to really be in charge of what was going on. In case you just tune in, we're talking today to debut author Liz Prado about her collection, Babies on Fire. In preparing for the interview, Liz, uh, I noticed multiple times people bringing up the issue of literary citizenship mm -hmm. and, and your um, problems with the terminology. Uh, first, I want to hear what what your issues are with with that term, and then I I, I want to then I want to engage the term a little bit with you in yeah. relationship to you as a figure in 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 the literary world. Okay. 
Well, it's not so much the term itself that I have a problem with. It's what it's become to mean. And I, I love the idea that we are all out there helping each other as writers because there's not a lot of other people who kind of care what we're doing, you know, in this age of the Kardashians and, you know, all, all the other noise that's out there. The arts don't get much play. And so to whatever extent we can support each other and be cheerleaders for each other is awesome. Uh, what I've seen happen to this term literary citizenship, though, is it's been co-opted and it's really become a pretty self-congratulatory uh term that's really about, look at what a good literary citizen I am because I promote other people's works and I go to all these readings. And I think people have started to use it as part of their platform. I think they're starting to use it as a way that other people should look at them and go, look how good I am. And that's starting to undercut then what the very point of it is, it feels like to me. And, you know, risk diluting the entire concept behind it. Well, the reason why I think it keeps coming up in the interviews you're having around the collection is not because there's the theme in, in Babies on Fire. There is no literary citizenship theme. I don't think so. But it seems to me like you really are an example of, of a great literary citizen. And, and when I th- a couple of the things that come to mind is just how transparent you are about uh, the life of a writer mm. and how much... Uh, contextualizing success and failure. For instance, you've done you've done blog posts where you've been transparent about how many times you've submitted in a year and how many pieces you got accepted mm-hmm. and how many times you got something rejected mm-hmm. and what your submission philosophy is. And then similarly in interviews around submitting this collection, Babies on Fire, that you originally thought to order it the way you would imagine mm. the order of the collection should appear published. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fellow writer Natalie Serber talked about um, you should, when you're submitting it, not be concerned about the order for publication, but you should front load it with all your best stories. Mm-hmm. But offering these 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 nuggets for people, for writers who are also trying to be published, as well as just supporting other writers in Portland and elsewhere, it feels like, I don't know if this is coming from a philosophy of your own or if it's coming from a, a, just a natural inclination, but it feels like that idea of citizenship is feels like a big part of Liz Prado in the world to me. Oh, well, thank you. That's great. And I, you know, I don't know if it's something that comes naturally. I mean, it does come naturally. I don't feel like I have to force myself. But I also think it's because there were some writers, successful writers who really put a hand out to me early on in my career when I was, I put this in quotes, nobody. (laughs) You know, I had no publications. I was just starting out. They treated me seriously and they gave me a big hand. David Levitt is one of them. Steve Almond is another one of them. There were people like that who really helped my career along, who really encouraged me. And uh, that's just a pay it forward thing for me. I see how important that was to me. And when I look out there and I see all the young writers struggling and what a difference it makes just to have someone tell them you're on the right track keep going you're doing the right thing it's really hard sometimes sometimes it sucks but hang in there that makes all the difference in the world it did to me at least and what about your your life as an editor and teacher in terms of how it reflects back when you're writing these days is there a way in which it's informing it or inhibiting it um, when you're creating new art I think it's really informed it a lot um, I, I was really surprised, not even the teach. I mean, teaching was great because, you know, having to talk about 
the way writing works and doesn't work really helped me be clearer about it and even clearer about stuff that I knew. I would sometimes stop and think, wow, I knew that. That's kind of cool. Um, but the editing itself is really the thing that gets me because, you know, again, I sit down, I open up this story or this essay, and within the first two pages, usually I know, wow, is this a piece I'm going to accept or not accept? Or if I'm working on a manuscript consult, I get a pretty good idea of what may or may not be working just in those early pages. And it reinforces for me how important it is to have those stakes on the page early on in the piece and not be spending a lot of time on throat clearing and look at the beautiful sentences I can write and things like that. So that's really reinforced that for me. And are there some touchstone writers for you that uh, you mentioned Steve Almond, of course, Mm -hmm. but are there other writers that you look to for the type of writing that you want to do? You know, in terms of I don't know if so much in terms of style so much as um, just kind of the feeling behind it. Lydia Yuknovich is one who she puts it on the page right away and she pulls no punches. And those are all cliches. She (laughs) she really puts the tough stuff on the page right up front. And that was something that I noticed both about her memoir, The Chronology of Water, and about her new novel, The Small Backs of Children. Like the first two pages are the most heartbreaking, wrenching things. Things you can possibly imagine, which seems like such a crazy way to start a book. You know, you think, oh, that's going to drive people away, but it doesn't. Interestingly, I mean, it probably drives some people away, but most people, I think, at the sense of, oh, this writer tells the truth, right. the actual truth. And it's laid on the page in such a beautiful and precise way that we know that writer is going to take care of us through these difficult times, too. And so for me, that's a real example of what I want to do in my writing. And you you yourself are working on a memoir. I have recently completed a memoir, and I'm looking for representation now. Yeah. Would you feel comfortable talking a little bit about it? Yeah. Uh, it is about the four years during which my adult brother and elderly father descended into mental and physical illness, and they ultimately both died, uh, leaving me extremely fragmented and trying to figure out how to come back from that and, and be whole again. And, you know, what, we had talked earlier about how unrelenting grief can seem. And, you know, my biggest concern is, wow, that sounds really depressing. And I do try and infuse it with humor and some of the things you and I talked about earlier. But uh, it, <laughs> I do kind of worry, is it going to come off more like what I described about Lydia's work, which is like, oh, this is a person who's willing to tell the truth and go there? Or is it just going to be a dirge for the reader? And those are the things that I work with in it. Well, if your essays are any example, it's definitely not going to be a, a dirge. Oh, well, I mean, thank I, f- you. I feel like there's a lot of vitality and, and variation in tone and, and when you're confronting these very issues in your essays. Well, and I use sort of a mosaic format, and that's part of the reason I do that. Um, part of it is because of the way this happened to me, these events with my dad and my brother being ill and dying was very fragmented the way I understood information and had information come to me was fragmented. So I have some straight ahead prose like, uh, you know, almost essay like pieces. But then I also use medical definitions from the dictionary. I annotate my brother's autopsy report. I, you know, I have a lot of things like that, that break it up in sort of interesting ways and allow the experience to not just be like this, well, like I said, a dirge, you know, it, it modulates it a little bit. Are, are there memoirs that you went to with some of these concerns to look at how people were doing their their stories? Yeah. Uh, you know, the suicide index is one. And um, 
oh, I just lost the name of the other one. I, uh, uh, <laughs> it will come back to me, hopefully, the other one that I'm trying to remember right now. Um, but also just looking at something like, I can't remember the name of it, um, Emily Rapp's memoir, The Still Point of the Turning World. Is that right? I know the memoir. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's the she, title or not. Yeah, something like that. She wrote it like right as her son was dying, basically. And it, I mean, it was really just so crazy because the book came out and he died within maybe a couple of weeks of each other. So she's not on tour. She's on the Today Show mourning the loss of her young son. But one of the things I found very interesting about it and also interesting about Rob and Rom's memoir is they were very immediate. You know, I think we're often told that we're supposed to let, I don't know, 15 years pass before we write about these traumatic events. Mm. And here were some writers who were writing about them in a very immediate way. And that was very appealing to me, too. And I think there's a way in which that actually gives more energy to the writing than if we have 15 years to look back on it. I think that almost flattens it out in some ways. Well, it's in, it'll be interesting when your memoir comes out, since you are writing about some of these issues in mm-hmm. Babies on Fire mm-hmm. without intending to, mm-hmm. to, to yeah. hold the juxtaposition of, of the fictional life of Liz Prado and the non-fictional yeah. life of Liz Prado. <laughs> uh, there was one other thing you mentioned, and I didn't know if this was tongue-in-cheek or if this was really, <laughs> really uh, true, but you mentioned that you had three-fourths of a craft book based on how much you had to revise one of the stories in Babies on Fire, but I didn't know if that was just... No, I really do. Really it's do. like sitting in my computer in a file, and I've like had, um, you know, I, I had a professional editor look at it and help me write a proposal for it, because I find proposals completely baffling for that kind of nonfiction book. Uh, yeah, and it's for the story when Cody told me he loves me on a weird winter day, and it was just such an interesting and instructive revision process from the beginning of when I started, started to write that story to where it is right now in this collection and I thought it was another one of those examples of the transparency you were talking about I really want to be transparent about that process I find that so many writers students young writers we we see a published piece and we think that like it just started out that way like you know (laughs) <laughs> the writer just immediately put brilliance on the page. And there's just no transparency about all the work and changes that had to happen to get it to be that smooth on the page. And I wanted to put that down so uh, struggling, young, whatever, aspiring writers could see that and understand, really, really, really understand what it takes. Can you tell us what about that story's revision process sparked the idea of doing a craft book versus another story? Uh, yeah, I think it was just because, first of all, it that story had started out as sort of a novella that I thought I was going to turn into a novel at some point. It was maybe 80 pages long when I first you know, took a look at it. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to flush this out and make it into a novel. But I didn't have a novel in me at that time when I finally turned to that. So I wanted to see, well, how do you turn a novel into a short story? So that was the first thing that happened. I never had any intention of it being a short story when I first put it on the page. So that required making a lot of hard choices about what plot lines to keep, what subplots to keep, what characters to keep. I just cut characters like crazy left and right. I even ended up changing the gender of characters, you know, because I had to find a certain balance balance in a short story that was not demanded in a long form piece. And so I just think, you know, that act in and of itself and the choices is really indicative of what we have to do when we're writers. We have to make choices all the time and they're not always easy, but they serve the, 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 the bigger story in the long run. 
So, so Liz, could we hear a little bit of, of the story that went through many revisions and now <laughs> appears in, in the collection published? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the story is when Cody told me he loves me on a weird winter day. And one of the things I want to set up up front that is more obvious when you read it on the page than when you're hearing it read aloud is one of the things that I ended up doing was isolating some of the dialogue and making it into script-like dialogue, like a, a screenplay or a play or something like that. So you'll hear me say, interior my apartment, and that's when you know we're going into those things. So I'll just read a couple pages. Cody and I are sitting side by side on a picnic table looking toward the Rocky Mountains covered by ponchos of snow. Black-necked geese are honking, and I'm thinking, they must be lost. They should be in Denver. They shouldn't be in Denver. They should be in Acapulco. The concrete slab is cold under my butt, but the mile-high sun is warm and bright. It makes us both squint. That's when Cody says, Meg, I think I'm falling in love with you. So I say, I think I'm falling in love with him too. Two months ago, we were just friends swilling Tennessee whiskey to numb respective heartaches. Next thing you know, he's telling me he loves me and I'm thinking I love him back. For a second or two, that seems just fine. Then Cody says, Okay, but here's the thing. I'm insanely busy right now. Between teaching and getting ready for this art installation in three weeks, I just don't have the time to start a new relationship. It wouldn't be fair. So I think we should put things on hold for a month or so and then see where we stand. Where did the lost geese go? They aren't honking anymore. The breeze isn't blowing the bare tree branches. A car hasn't driven by the park in a long time. It's all so quiet that I can't pretend I didn't quite hear him and say, what? Cody looks at his watch. Damn, I've got to get to my studio. I was supposed to meet a student there at four. He jumps off the picnic table and stands in front of me. He blocks out the sun and I don't have to squint anymore. Okay, he holds my gloved hand. I love you. This time I don't say it back. This time I just say, uh-huh, and listen for the wing beat of geese. Interior, my apartment, two months earlier. I'm on my couch. Cody is on my floor. His girlfriend just broke up with him. My boyfriend just broke up with me. We're passing a Jack Daniels bottle back and forth. This makes me look tough. Cody. So in case it didn't suck enough, now I also don't have a date for Celia's fundraiser. Me. They could have at least waited until after the party to break up with us. Cody, handing me the bottle. We could go together. Me. I can think of worse. The geese are back. Where the hell were you when I needed you, I say. They honk, honk, honk. Some nonsense from the Tao Te Ching. The sun is falling south. It will be cold and dark soon. Across the street from the park is a coffee shop, the kind with dreadlocked girls and scratched wood tables and frou-frou drinks with the comfort of vanilla and spice. It's warm inside, with steam shooting from the espresso machine and music shooting from the stereo. I order a molto grande latte with cinnamon and nutmeg. It's okay for me to have that much caffeine now that I'm not pregnant anymore. We've been listening to Liz Prado read from her story, When Cody Told Me He Loves Me on a Weird Winter Day, from her debut collection, Babies on Fire, from Press 53. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, Liz. Thank you so much, David. David. 